If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to Titus chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the scripture we're going to be looking at is in your bulletin there on the inside of the back cover. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. So Titus 1, verses 5 to 16. Friends, listen. This is God's Word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. So we're looking right now at the spiritual life made simple. And last week, we talked about, we saw that, the, that a simplified spiritual life starts with God. It starts with God, remembering that God is a God of grace. When you remember God and His grace at the beginning of the day, throughout the day, that He is for you and that He is with you, it gives us peace in our circumstances. It doesn't always change the circumstances, but it changes us in our circumstances. Because when you experience God's grace and His peace, you begin to feel like the eternal life that God has prepared for us in the future breaks into time. And you feel a foretaste of it even today in the present. Well, Paul goes on in this passage to instruct Titus in what to do. Okay, in verse 5 he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And so this letter is instructions for how to set up the community of the church. Okay, and it begins with appointing, verse 5, appointing elders in every town. Now, I want, you to, I want to step back and just give you a little bit of a picture of elders um, so that you can know how to think about what elders were and what they did in the ancient world. They were the older and the wiser folks who sat at the gates of the city. Okay? These were people that traditionally were retired or there were times when they would gather them so that there were set times and they would sit there at the gates of the city. And these were people that you could go to. Okay? They were well-known in, in the town. They were respected by all. And so if you had a dispute with somebody, 
if you had a problem with someone else, you could say, okay, let's go talk with so-and-so. And the other person would say, you know what, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's go talk to them. Um, and so the elders provided advice, and they even gave legal decisions to the people of the town. And so I want to give you just a couple of examples that we see in the scriptures for how this happened in parts of the ancient world. And so Joshua 20, verse 4, it says that the man who committed manslaughter shall flee to one of these cities, these were cities of refuge, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Okay, and so the elders of the city also sort of protected and oversaw the health of the city. So they would see people coming in and going out of the gates of the city. And so there they were, and he would explain his case, and they shall then take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. Okay? And so they stood there, and they made, I mean, this was a legal decision to harbor a fugitive, a manslaughter fugitive from justice until his case could be heard. Okay, and then even the king actually had a place where he would rule from the gates of the city. 2 Samuel 19.8, it says, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And all the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. And so even the king had a place at the gate where he would come. And so there was a part of, you know, next to the city gates where rule would happen where people would, uh, would, would hear from judges or they would go to elders in the community. And so now Paul, so now for Paul, as Paul is thinking about, he's been preaching the gospel, right? He's been announcing this amazing news that God has broken into history. God has come into history and rescued us from sin. Like God has started something brand new in Jesus, right? Through his death and resurrection, everything has changed. And he's been proclaiming this message and people who believe it are starting to see their lives change. People who believe it are starting to think, well, this is really going to change everything. And these people began to form communities. You know, Paul would tell them to encourage each other, to remind each other of this truth. And they'd build these communities, these like spiritual families. And so as Paul understood, as they came together, Paul knew that they needed leadership. And so what was happening was these, the, the, the church became this, this family, this sort of community within the wider community. Uh, almost like a city within a city, um, and it, because it was different, right? It's heavily involved in its community. It's heavily involved in its city, but it operates in different ways. I mean, in some ways, um, I mean, maybe you can think if you're a college football fan, you, you know, when, when your team goes on the road, you know, and they show the big shots of the, uh, of the stands, you know, and if you're playing Alabama in, in Tuscaloosa, you know, the whole thing is a sea of red, Right? But if UCLA were to show up and play before they got crushed, you'd see this little tiny contingent of light blue clad fans. Right? And so, um, and they, they march to a different, literally to a different beat. Right? They have a different band that plays different songs and they cheer for different things sometimes. Sometimes they cheer for great plays, but, but you get the point. And so the church was this sort of community within the community. And Paul wanted to make sure, obviously inspired by God, led by Jesus. He wanted to make sure that the church family, that the church community had this same kind of situation where the elders could come to a place and help lead the church. Are you with me? Okay, and so this is what it was. And so, and so for us, I mean, just to bring this then into our day, like who do you want in leadership when you have a problem in your spiritual life? All right, think about that. When you have trouble, who do you go to when you need help knowing, what does God think about this? 
How does God feel about this? Right? Who do you go to? Um, in thinking about spiritual life made simple, this is super important. This idea of spiritual leadership and spiritual leaders is so important because so often the decisions that we have to make are not simple. Right? I mean, so often, think about it. I mean, life isn't simple, so how can spiritual life be simple? You know, work and career questions can be unbelievably complicated. Um, relationships can be complicated. They're not simple. You know, managing all of the aspects of your life can be really complicated. And so God understands this. He knows how important this is. And so God wants to make sure that you have people that you can go to. He wants to make sure that you have people who can help simplify your spiritual life when it gets complicated. And they're called elders because of their wisdom and their experience. Okay? And elders do really two things. Let's see here. Yeah, so elders do two things. These are the two things elders do. Number one, they help people understand how God relates to their complicated lives. Right? Here's a situation. Well, here's how God thinks and feels about your situation. Or here are the truths from God's word that would relate to the situation that you're dealing with. Um, and then second, they're, they're called to oversee and equip the church so that our people can help each other understand how God relates to their complicated lives. Right? And so... One is, is, is like proactive leading or proactive feeding, right? Feeding you spiritually. When you're struggling, you can come to an elder. The elder can give you advice or wisdom. But that can only go so far. The other thing elders are called to do is to equip you so that you would know God so well that you can help others in our church family to know how God relates to their spiritual lives, right? As all of us grow up, as all of us mature spiritually, we're going to find that we have things to share, we're going to find the things that we have learned can actually help other people and give them a greater experience of God and how he relates to their lives. And so, in number one, the elders are reactive, kind of reacting to your questions, your struggles, your, you know, you know, your complications. But in number two, they're proactively developing um, ministries in the church, programs in the church that are designed to equip you to grow and then to help each other grow. Okay, that's what they're, they're called to do. And in verse 7, um, I think this, these functions are kind of summed up uh, in the word overseer. Right? They're called elders because they're older with more experience. In verse 7, they're called overseers. Right? They oversee the church and they help lead it forward into health. And so they feed and they lead. So the question again comes, what kind of people should fill these roles? What are the kinds of people that you want doing this for you in your life? Um, well, the rest of the chapter, Paul spends, from verses 5 all the way to verse 16, Paul spends the chapter answering that very question. Okay? And what Paul says is that elders need to be men who are three things. This is what we're going to look at. They need to be, the elders are, number one, above reproach in their families. Number two, they're above reproach in relationships. And then three, they can protect the church with their life and teaching. Okay? And so, before we look at number one here, um, I'm sure most of you heard me just say that they're men. Right? Elders need to be men who are these things. In verse six, if you see, the qualifications of an elder uh, is that he needs to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers. Okay? Okay? 
Uh, in fact, this isn't the only place where when the Bible describes elders, it describes them as men. comedic relief for tension that's about to happen, right, as I talk about men and women. Um, in every place where pastors and elders are described, it des- the Bible describes and requires that they be men. So if you do the biblical study, the case is both clear and it's compelling. Okay, and just to be honest, for many people, especially in our day and age, the Bible's teaching that m- of male-only pastors and elders is enough for them to dismiss Christianity and to dismiss the Bible entirely. Um, then they, they say it's outdated at best, and it's oppressive to women at worst. Um, and we just, need to, we just need to be aware that this is how this teaching comes across. Um, and I would say the biggest reason that this teaching comes across this way is because the church has been guilty of being oppressive and not respectful to women. It's used teaching like this to make women feel like they don't have anything to offer spiritually. It's made women, it's, it's taught that all women need to submit to all men, which the Bible doesn't teach, okay? And so, um, and what's important, though, is the closer you get to the Bible, the more you study the Bible and what it says about women, you can see that the Bible's view is actually more loving and more caring to women than any other culture in which it was written, Okay? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament, God gave legal rights to women when no other culture did. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus shocked the people of his day by spending time with women, by teaching women, by letting women learn from him. Like this, this was, it was shocking. You can read John chapter 4 as one instance with the woman at the well. His disciples were freaked out. Like, why are you talking to this woman? Um, and yet Jesus did. The New Testament clearly opposes the oppression of women in society and in the family because it calls husbands and the church to honor them and to care for them in ways that made the church stand out from the culture. Okay, And so you need to understand there's a difference between what the Bible teaches and the way that it's been practiced in oppressive, misogynistic churches. Okay, You see, to be able to separate that um, and you're part of a church, harbors a church, that will admit that this actually has been the case. And we do everything we can to keep that from happening. But, but think about this. The church was a place that women came to because of the way it honored them. And what does that look like for us today? So but then the question becomes, well, if this is how the, the Bible has been, then why does God limit the roles of pastor and elder to men? Um, the Bible teaches really clearly that men and women are equal before God. Okay, they are, they, they are an equal footing with God, but it says that they have different roles in the church. Okay, and on this, there can be a lot that can be said, but let me kind of summarize, because we actually want to get to what the elders are supposed to be, but I just don't want to ignore this issue, because I know it's on your mind. If you want to talk more about it, you can come talk to me. You can talk to one of the elders. Um, afterwards, you can hear more about what we think on this, but I think the best way to think about this issue in our day is to recognize that the temptation for many men, if they are given permission, is to abdicate the responsibility that they have in the family and in the community. Okay? I think in our day and age, men are tempted and are willing to abdicate the responsibility that they have in their families and in their communities. Um, televisions 
remote controls, and lounge chairs are thrones of abdication for men. Not for all men, but for a lot of them. And there are men who will check out of their family lives. They will check out of their community life. And they will create virtual existences and relationships, either on the internet or in front of the television, where they check out of their responsibilities. God knows this. God knows that if this happens in the church, when this happens in the church, the church will never, ever thrive. The church needs spiritually vibrant and, um, and proactively participating men and women if it's going to be the city within the city that will draw people to the life that God has for us. And, that, and so that's one of the reasons. I think that's the best thing to think about when you see these passages that talk about men's responsibility to lead in the church. And in fact, when men live out this kind of relationship that the Bible prescribes, when men take on the authority that God's given them and use it the way he says to, typically most women are thankful and not frustrated. Most. Most women are thankful. So, what are these elders then like? What are these elders like? Well, Paul says first, they're above reproach in their families. Look at verse 5, or verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, so I want to make just a quick, uh, a quick statement. Um, above reproach doesn't mean perfect. Okay, above reproach doesn't mean sinless. Uh, how do I know that? Well, because Paul told Titus to appoint men like this. Right? can't be perfect because no one's perfect. Okay, so you have to understand that, that, that above reproach doesn't mean perfect. Above reproach means that there's nothing hidden in your life that would make someone say, whoa, I can't trust you or I don't want to follow you. Okay? That's what above reproach is. Um, a counterexample of what does it mean to not be above reproach? Well, I mean, our former mayor, Mayor Filner, right? I mean, He's not above reproach. When you think about him and his character, right? you think about him and his workplace, right? he is not really fit to lead, I mean, especially in the church. Right? And his, his sins were so egregious, he wasn't even fit to lead in public office. Right? And so this would be an example of someone. So if you've got something in your life right, where someone can go, aha, gotcha, right? or you've been hiding this, or this is so egregious that people, they're not going to be able to trust you as a leader. Right? then that would make them not above reproach. And so what's important for us, um, I think, one of the biggest keys to being above reproach is to be honest. Okay, especially here at Harbor. Like the key is the gospel gives us freedom to just be honest. We don't act like we're perfect. I am not perfect. I have sins. And the people in my life, um, there are people in my life who know all about my sins. Okay, there's nothing that I'm doing. There's nothing that I struggle with that people don't know about. Okay? And as the elders understand who I am and what I struggle with, right, um, they make decisions about, okay, yes, we can trust you. Yes, we are willing to follow you. And so being above reproach doesn't mean perfect. And one of the keys to being above reproach is to invite people into the areas of your life where you struggle. Okay? Again, 
the Bible isn't looking for perfect people, but it's looking for people who are above reproach, which means dealing with their sins, right? Honest about their sins, willing to be open, not with every human being on earth necessarily, um, but to make sure that you're not alone in your struggle with your sin, right? That's part of being above reproach. And when Paul says above reproach, the first place he goes is to the family, right? The, the elder or the person's family <clears throat> is of vital importance, right? The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so the first place you look is the family, right? As you want to evaluate who are the kind of people that you would want to go to, right? Who are the kind of people that you want feeding you and leading you spiritually? You want to look at their family, Is this man devoted to his wife? Okay, and a word on that. This doesn't mean that elders have to be married, um, but then what we're talking about here is sexual faithfulness. Right, sexual faithfulness. And so um, in the Greek, the phrase, uh, a husband of one wife, it's it's literally like a one-woman man. A one-woman man. And so as we think about this from the perspective of evaluating who should be elders in the church, um, this is also a call to all men. It's a call to all men. The elders are examples both to men and to women. We'll actually see that next week as we look into chapter 2. Okay, Because in chapter 2 you see when you have men like this, it filters down. It actually produces a kind of community uh, that we'll look at next week in Titus chapter 2. But so, um, so one of the practical applications of this in the first century was that you couldn't be a polygamist and be an elder in the church. There were people who had multiple wives uh, in the ancient world. And if you could be a Christian and have multiple wives, but you couldn't be an elder. Um, because the elders are supposed to be examples of Jesus. And Jesus is singularly devoted to his church. He's singularly devoted and faithful to his church. And so, so from the wife then to the family life, right? That his children, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So yet he has children who, are, who, who believe, who are faithful, okay? Now, um, I think it's important for us to understand that, and, and I think that what this text is talking about, the word for children is actually the word that typically means young children, Okay, and I think it's describing children when they're living in the home. Okay, if you have children who, as they grow older, you realize that when children leave the home, um, there are lots of factors that factor into whether they stay walking with Jesus or not. Okay, lots and lots of things, you know, relationships, friendships, um, things that they get taught, things they get exposed to. There are lots of things that, that come into play with the decisions that children make when they leave the home. And I don't think all of those decisions are the responsibility of the elder, of their father. Um, I don't think that this means that if you are an elder, that your children will never ever leave the faith when they leave, the, when they leave your house. Okay, and so it's important for us to understand, I think this is talking about during the time where they live in the home, their children are faithful. Their children are, like, they're obedient you know, their children are respectful, right? Um, the, the description here in the verse is that they're not, in, they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, right? So they're not living recklessly drunken and sex-crazed lives. That's what debauchery is. And with insubordination, you're talking about 
just a willful, repeated, egregious violation of parental authority. Okay? Um, why is this? Well, because the Bible knows that the elders are going to feed and lead the church. And you want men in the role of elders who know how to feed and lead others. And the best place to examine whether or not they're able to do that is with the people that know them best. Right? With the people that, that, that they spend the most time with. That they can't train and disciple and teach. You know, in some ways, if their children don't see the reality of God in their lives in the home, then you would want to pause. You'd want to hit the pause button on putting them into leadership in the church. Make sense? And so, um, so it's saying elders, need to, they're above reproach in their families. And then it goes on. They're above reproach in their relationships, right? So it's not just their family life, but then when they begin to interact with other people in the community, other people in the city, there are things that don't characterize them and there are things that do, right? An overseer as God's steward. And so these elders, they are taking responsibility to be leaders in God's household, right? They are stewards of God. And so they, again, they need to be above reproach. This doesn't mean perfect, right? But it describes what it means. It means that he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, right? These are not things that you want to characterize the leaders in your life, right? The spiritual leaders, how are people that are like this going to feed you spiritually, right? You don't trust people that are like this, right? You can't trust them spiritually. You, I mean, leaders will reproduce who they are in the people that they lead. And so elders can't be this way or they're going to be producing churches that are this way. And so they're not to be these things. Um, and... I mean, it's just interesting. Sometimes the church can get blinded to things like this, and we almost need the culture outside to remind us when, we've, when we need to wake up. Because um, sometimes we can get churches that have leaders like this, um, and the, the, the culture will call us on it. Um, and when the culture calls us on things, we need to listen. And so they shouldn't be this way, verse 8, though. But they need to be hospitable. Right? They need to be welcoming. They need to be open. They need to be willing to roll the carpet out for people. Right? That they love strangers. Right? They also love good. Right? These are people who love good. And when you think about this as an example, like I was thinking about this this week, you know, um, we know we're supposed to be good, but do you love good? Right? Do you really love what's good? You know, and I feel like so many of us, we're, we're like a mixed, our hearts are mixed, right? There's times when we love what's good, and there's times when we love, frankly, what's really bad. Um, and so these elders want to be characterized by people who love what is good. They love what's good. They're self-controlled, they're upright, they're holy, and they're disciplined. Um, man, this is, a, this is a, like a high standard, Right? There are really two ways that I've seen people respond to this standard uh, that's good. Like the, the humble person, uh, the humble elder would see this and think, you know what, Man, this is not me. Right? When I read this, 
I'm flooded to memory of all the ways that I'm not this way, where I'm not disciplined, I'm not holy, I'm not, I don't love what's good, I'm not self-controlled. Um, and I see my faults, I see the way I fall short. Um, you want elders that have the humility to feel that way. But you need to have elders that also have the maturity to know that that's not the sum total of who they are. Okay? I want you to track with me. You want elders humble enough to know where they fall short of these things, but you need elders who are mature enough to know that this isn't the entirety of their story. Okay? You need to have elders who are also so centered on God that they can say, yes, that's not my whole story. Yes, I struggle, but God is working in my life. And by his power and his grace, I reflect these things. Right? And so I think sometimes um, some churches can be so into everybody falling short, everybody a dirty, rotten sinner in every way in your life that we can lose the fact that actually God wants us to grow. And so you want leaders who have that balance. You want leaders who can both be honest about their failings, but also know and can talk about how God is growing them and how they are more mature and they're growing in the course of life. Because that's what we want for everybody. That's what God wants. God says, you know what? In my extravagant grace, I completely forgive you and accept you exactly the way you are. And you know what? I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to unite you to Jesus so that you can grow. I'm going to change your heart so that you don't feel the way you felt before. I'm going to change your mind so that you don't think the way you thought before. I'm going to give you spiritual blessings that will transform and renew you. And you want elders. You want elders that do this. You want elders that speak from both perspectives, that make you feel warm and welcome with God as your loving and accepting Father, but also will help you to grow so that you can become more of what God wants you to be. That's what elders do. <clears throat> and so, I think um, these are the kinds of leaders that will produce spiritual health in a church, right? Because they will breed what they have in others. They'll breed what they have in others. And then they'll be able to confront and oppose teaching that destroys spiritual health, okay? Let me show you something really quick in verse, um, verse 9. So verses 7 and 8 talk about his character and relationships. And then verse 9, let me, uh, I guess let's just pull up the third point here, um, Elders are not only above reproach in their families, they're above reproach in relationships, but then third, they can protect the church with their life and teaching. Okay? They can protect the church with their life and their teaching. Verse 9 says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That word sound, you know, sound doctrine, it's, it's an interesting word because it actually could be translated healthy. Healthy. Uh, it's related to this idea of being healthy, like having health, having vitality, being fit. It's connected to the idea of God promising to give us eternal life. 
Okay? And so elders need to hold firm to the word, right? The word that Paul preached as an apostle, the word that came to us in the scriptures. They need to hold firm to the Bible and to its teaching so that they can give instruction in doctrine that produces life. Okay? You go to the doctor and you get some medicine that makes you healthier. Hopefully. (laughs) Um, You go to a nutritionist and they prescribe food that will make you healthier. Right? That will make you live longer, live better, live stronger. Right? Well, elders need to be able to teach the Bible. And when they do, when they hold fast to this and they're able to teach and instruct others, the doctrine, the teaching that they give actually produces spiritual life. I was talking with some guys this week about this passage and we were asked, I was asking the question, when was the last time you ever shared something with someone else that actually made them more alive spiritually? Because there is truth that can cause people to grow. There are things that you can share with other people. Uh, There is teaching that comes from the Bible that can actually make people live healthier, draw closer to God, know Him better, know how He thinks and how He feels. When was the last time you shared something with someone else that caused them to grow? We want leaders in a church to do this a lot, right? You want leaders in a church who can do this and do this for you and make sure that you're learning how to do this for others, right? Um, This is truth, again, that when you tie it back to the first two, um, this is truth that comes out in their relationships. It's truth that comes out in their family life. I think when you have the kind of character that's described in verses 7 and 8, right, or the character in verse 8, not the character in verse 7, that's the kind of character that makes you able to teach. Right? People know what you say, they can hear what you say, but they smell who you are. Right? And sometimes if who we are doesn't match up to what we say, they don't hear anything. Um... And so this teaching produces health. It actually produces eternal life in the here and now. You want elders that can do this. And this is so important, not just because all of us need to be growing together. Not all of us need to be growing spiritually, but it's also because there is teaching in our day and age. There's teaching in our world, in our city, that needs to be opposed There are people who teach all kinds of things. There are false teachers, and those false teachers need to be stopped. False teaching needs to be confronted and exposed as false teaching so that you can live in and believe the truth. Um, That's what he goes on to say. There's many, in verse 10, who are insubordinate. They're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party was a group of Jewish people who became Christians 
And their main message was, in the first century, their main message was, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to obey the Old Testament laws. Um, In effect, what they were saying was that Jesus didn't die for the world. Jesus only died for one nation. He died for the Jews. And if you become a Jew by believing in Jesus and then being circumcised if you're a guy, but following the the Old Testament laws, uh, no matter if you're a guy or a girl, um, that's how you can have a relationship with God. And they got so involved in the details and the minutia of the laws, right, that you needed to follow and how many there were and how exactly you had to follow them. And and they just, and, and I mean, what Paul says is, man, they're empty talkers and they're deceivers. They need to be silenced because they're upsetting people. And there's an acknowledgement here that, that we need teachers in our lives. And we need teachers so badly that we're even willing sometimes to follow teaching that's not right. Um, we can be deceived. We can be taught wrong. We can be, we can be misled by teaching. And you need elders who can expose that teaching and who can protect you from it so that you would be devoted to the teaching that actually brings you life. That would brings you life. And so I think about today, um, really any teaching that tells you that Jesus didn't have to come is teaching that you need to stay away from. Okay? Any teaching that says Jesus didn't have to die and rise again is teaching you need to stay away from. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Um, There are so many religions, there are so many uh, philosophies that some of which would even say, yeah, that's great that you believe in Jesus. Um, But I think there's a lot of different ways to get to God. Um, that's, That's teaching that basically says Jesus did not have to come. Jesus didn't have to die didn't have to rise again. You can be saved. You can know God. You can have a flourishing relationship with God without Jesus. Friends, that's teaching, um, that's teaching that needs to be opposed. There is no life in that teaching. Um, God, if there was a way for God to save the world without sacrificing his own son, he would have done it. The night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he was betrayed, Jesus said, Father, you can do anything. If there is any other way, please don't make me do this. And God had him go through it anyways. Because there is no other way for us to have our sins forgiven. There is no other sacrifice that has been made that would atone for our sins and bring us forgiveness with God. And so any teaching that says you can get there or you can be all that you can be without Jesus or set, um, is teaching that needs to be opposed because Jesus is the source of life. And we spent six months and we're still not done yet. We're going to get back to it um, as, as we, when, we, when we're done with Titus. But um, we've been talking about just what Jesus has done for us, right? What he does for us, what he does in us, and what he does through us. Like, all of this isn't so that God can offer us an option and say, okay, here you go. Here's one choice. God came in Jesus because we were lost and needed to be found. God sacrificed his son because his justice demands 
His justice demands that wrongs be atoned for. That justice is served. And so Jesus came. Jesus came so that we could be not just above reproach in general, but be above reproach perfectly. With Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, He makes us holy and perfectly blameless because He gives us His perfection. Right? And if that's true, if that's true, then you need it for your spiritual life. And if that's true, then not only do you need it, but everyone needs it for their spiritual well-being. Otherwise, Jesus didn't have to come. And it's important for us as a church to have leaders that have this kind of character because when you need to deliver this kind of teaching, when Christianity is in line with the culture in terms of what it's aiming for. So many people want a renewed city. So many people want renewed homes, renewed families, renewed workplaces, renewed communities, right? Um, and in that place, our, the, the, the best teaching of the gospel is accepted by even folks who don't believe. But when we begin to talk about uh, things that the culture disagrees, the culture militantly and violently opposes, you have to have elders You've got to have leaders in the church who can deliver this teaching with gentleness, with respect. Uh, because I think that's the, that's the way that Jesus did it. And so we want elders in our church, um, both in our church in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, um, Pastors are called teaching elders, and then elders are called ruling elders. They just sort of describe um, just sort of the difference in function. So as a pastor, I'm a teaching elder in our church. And then we have six ruling elders. Um, I know many of you know them. If you don't, um, we need to change that um, so you can get to know your elders. Um, but in our church, as I think about this, like this passage weighs heavily on me, right? Because I know, like, who am I? to stand up and say, yes, this is what elders are supposed to be and, you know, this is what I am. Um, and I'm not perfect. Our elders are not perfect. But by God's grace, we see God working in our lives. And there are things that God has set us free from. And there's a level of maturity that we have experienced because we have learned to walk in the gospel. Because as we've devoted ourselves to God and the truth of his word, his word has changed us and made us new from the inside. We are not perfect. We still struggle. So in some ways, we are exactly the same. But we've been chosen and called to the roles that we have by you, right? By you because, um, because you've seen in us something that you're willing to follow. And it's just important for us to be able to say that, to be able to acknowledge that um, you've got, I, I am so thankful personally, for the elders that are part of, for the ruling elders that are part of our church. I'm so thankful for their godliness, for their honesty about their struggles. Um, I think they are the kind of men who produce in our church a culture, um, a culture of honesty and a culture that really seeks to follow Jesus in tangible ways.
And so, um, so let this passage make you wise about the kinds of leaders that you want to have over you. Let this passage spark in you questions. If you want to know more about how our elders are chosen or how the whole process works, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you have questions about the qualifications, we'd love, again, to talk to you about that. But also, let this passage call you, man or woman, uh, to live out the gospel in this way. Right? This is the call for all of us to live this way. Because this isn't, this is, these are people who have embraced what Jesus has done for us, but they're also seeing what Jesus does in us in real ways. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. God, thank you for establishing leadership like this. Father, thank you for calling elders to a high standard. And thank you, God, that you have worked in us what we need so that we can become these people by your grace. And I pray for every man here that whether you're going to make them an elder in the future or not, that you would have them aspire to to act and live like elders in their families, in their relationships. And I pray too for our women that they also would be above reproach uh, in their families and in their relationships. God, we pray these things so that all of us as a church family, in the midst of our being honest about our struggles, would be able to see you at work. We want to be able to see you in the reality of who you are, working in our lives. So as we see you at work, we know the gospel is true, uh, not just because Jesus rose from the dead, but because we see your power at work in us. Strengthen us, Lord, and bind us closer together as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.